0: to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is God, over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. At about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is mold and say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump One vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people i will call my people and her who was not my be- not beloved i will call beloved and in the very place where it was said to them you are not my people there they will be called sons of the living god there's the reading of God's word. Now, I know that's a lot in our society today of text messaging. I mean, it's not in, you know, we're the microwave generation, right? But beyond that even now, it's like now I don't even want to talk to you. I'll just text you, right? Like, well, who who talks anymore? We just text now, right? Like, why are you going to call me and have like a long drawn out conversation? Let's just text. And then even our text messaging goes from like, conversation in person to text messaging and then like i'm too lazy to even write the actual correct spelling of the word out we'll just actually split the words up and like btw or or or, or I'll be right back or whatever we have all these like you know strange like you know let's shorten even the text down so in a culture like ours to actually sit through the reading of a chapter at the beginning of a service oftentimes can be something that's a jolt or different but i want to express to you that that the truths contained in romans chapter nine Our life transforming, earth shattering, theologically will will shake you to your core and will drive you to worship and to see the world in the way that it truly is, to have confidence in a sovereign God who actually rules over his creation in the heavens above and on the earth below. Yes, what we're reading in Romans chapter 9 is controversial. Not controversial because of something on God's part controversial because people think that they are the masters of their own universe and when they come face to face with the god of scripture who actually says that he's sovereign over every detail and then he mercies whom he mercies and he hardens whom he hardens this becomes a di- very difficult text there's there's many people uh, james white uh relays this conversation that he had with a lady who was actually doing a course. She was a Roman Catholic, and she was doing a study on fundamentalists, interestingly. And somehow he says she looked at the phone book and found his name. <laughs> so it's interesting uh, she did that. But she went to sit down and do a, and, and, um, an interview with him to do a, a, a part as part of her coursework in college. And when she sat down with him, it didn't take long for them to get to the gospel, and the gospel of God's grace and his mercy and his power in all things. And specifically his gospel of grace that he saves and saves perfectly and it's his work and it's his mercy and it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with human will or exertion or power or running, but on God who has mercy. It's what he's accomplished in Jesus. And that he's sovereign over all things. He's the potter over the clay. And he hardens whom he wills and he mercies whom he wills. And she said to him, I would never worship a God like that. And he said to her, You never will, unless he shows mercy on you. You see, this text has been a text that many people have come, and Piper says their worship is either soared or they have separated from God. What they see about God in this text tells, and and their response to that tells tells a lot about what they believe about God and themselves. So let me just do a quick overview leading up to Romans chapter 9, because it's essential. Romans chapter 9 is not an isolated text, just all by itself sort of like suspended in midair. Romans we've been doing the gospel according to Paul verse by verse now we're in chapter nine don't forget we've got about two and a half years of verse by verse verse by verse Bible study leading up to this point remember Paul is writing a systematic understanding of the good news he really starts at the beginning to leading up to Romans chapter nine what happens here in Romans chapter nine is an essential piece listen What happens in Romans chapter 9 is necessary for Paul to answer because listen, if he does not provide an answer in Romans 9 to this problem that's going to arise, all of the rest of Romans is nonsense. It's meaningless. Because you see, as an example, Romans starts off with the picture of all of our fallenness. It talks for the first three chapters about the the utter sinfulness and depravity of human beings, that Jew and Gentile are all under sin. That there's no way for a person to actually boast before God. The Gentiles are without excuse, non-Jews, without excuse. We all know God. We suppress the truth about God. We exchange him for idols. And the Bible says to the Jew, but you are also without excuse, Romans chapter 2. Because you judge people for the very same things that you do. And you boast in the law, but you break the law. You say that you're circumcised, but through your breaking of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Which is very weird, but he says it. And then in Romans chapter 3, he says, here's the deal. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. None who seeks for God. None who does good. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Jew and Gentile alike, says Paul, are all under sin. And so what's going to happen? Well, maybe we'll use the law. And he says, the law was given to shut your mouth. Mm -hmm. Just shut you up. You can't use the law. The law impacting a fallen person doesn't make them righteous. The law can't do that. Something different has to happen. The law doesn't itself justify anybody. And so he says in Romans chapter 3, he says very clearly, by the deeds of the law, no flesh. No flesh will be declared righteous in his sight. Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then he says in Romans 3.28, he says, We conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. And this is all made possible because of what God did at that cross in his son. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is righteous and blameless. And he is that substitute. He's the representative of his people. And God can remain a just and holy God. Because he doesn't just say, well, you belittled my glory, no big thing. I love you anyways. God says, no, my holiness and my justice will be upheld. And he does so demonstrating his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus doesn't die for righteous people. It says that he justifies the ungodly. He declares righteous the ungodly. How? Paul makes this big to-do about the fact that at that cross... Jesus was the propitiation and don't let the word throw you don't let it exit your mind don't say I don't understand it so I don't care love the word put it on a t-shirt put it on a bumper sticker write it on your write it on your refrigerator get up and say it to yourself in the mirror talk about it with your spouse call your friend and say what's up propitiation booyah and hang up because (laughs) propitiation is everything when it comes to the source of what God provides in the Messiah God becomes man in the person of Christ Jesus lives righteously. We're not righteous. He was good. We're not. He's holy. We're not. Jesus goes to that cross so that the Father diverts His wrath away from sinners and it's fully absorbed and exhausted in His Son so that Jesus says it is finished. He is our Passover. He is the Lamb of God without spot, without blemish. And Jesus took the curse of the law. But what's strange about that is that He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. Paul says in Galatians He was born of a woman born under the law. He fulfills it perfectly and yet takes its curse as though he didn't. And so here's the truth of the gospel. All of this leads back to what God had already done in Abraham. The promise was made to Abraham that God was through Abraham's seed, Isaac, going to send ultimately the Messiah that was going to bless the whole world. That his descendants would be more numerous than the stars of heaven. That God was bringing a covenant that was a covenant watch. Not dependent upon anything in the person. It was a covenant where God obligated only himself. And so this is a thing that I'm going to do. And it was dependent upon nothing else. It was in in technical terms in the day called a royal grant treaty, meaning that God was only obligating himself. There was no part on Abraham to fulfill this. God said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to bless you. And then Abraham says, he believes God. Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, listen, if you're going to be a child of Abraham, you've got to be of the same faith as Abraham. And that is a faith that was apart from works. It was based on faith to the working one, Paul says in Romans 4. His faith is not credited as grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes, listen closely, in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, Is credited as righteousness, which leads you into this beautiful picture of the blessed man. Blessed is the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will never count his sin. And then Paul basically says, "Listen, God made this promise to Abraham; he's gonna, his heirs are gonna inherit the world. The world. How's that for vision for the future? Take that, Tim LaHaye, Left Behind series." That, you know what I'm saying? That, that Abraham's descendants are going to inherit the entire world, that this covenant promise God's going to keep through faith, same faith as Abraham, all these descendants, beautiful. And then what it does now is moves now to Romans 5, where Paul talks about two representatives, Adam and Jesus. You're in one or the other. Which one are you in? That's the question. If you're in Adam, you get death. You get transgression, condemnation. If you're, in, if you're in Christ, you get the gift, Paul says, of righteousness. It leads to eternal life. Which one are you in? Are you in Adam? Are you in Christ? Remember, just a quick excursus here. Uh, if you're in here right now and you have a name and you're breathing, living, uh, you have two legs, two hands, um, you're in Adam at least. Everyone born human in this world is in Adam. The question is, is whether or not through faith you've been joined to Christ and you've been crucified with him and raised with him. Romans 6 says, all who are in Christ died with him and were raised with him this past friday amazingly we had some baptisms praise god it was amazing baptism is really that display to the world of our union with christ and his death and his resurrection we displayed that on friday it was glorious amazing it was awesome and you knew which one was a navy seal let me just tell you that right now okay just you knew it was obvious i felt a little embarrassed a little thin in that water (laughs) standing next to steve It was glorious. It was an amazing moment. But Romans 6 really displays, we've been immersed in the Christ really through faith, but that baptism we do displays that. We're no longer slaves of sin, but now slaves to God. And it leads all the way up to the beautiful thing in Romans. It's beautiful, awesome. And I know our interpretation of Romans 7 is a little different than people might be used to, but really Romans 7 is not a display, I believe, of the current Christian experience. Romans 7, I believe, is a display of the fact that all who are in Christ are now the beneficiaries of the spiritual, um, indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. We're now, we're now, we're not in that place as in Adam where we actually can't do the things the laws require because it's falling on a dead spiritual person. But now that we have trusted in Christ and are in Christ, we're indwelt by his spirit. We're not like those who are in the flesh that cannot submit themselves to the law of God. We are now in the spirit and now we have the benefit of God's spirit so that Paul basically says that those who are in the spirit now can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself love is the fulfillment of the law we can do that now all these beautiful blessings and then ready we got to the big booyah moment for me and that was romans chapter 8 took us a while to get through and that was what the golden chain of redemption that was what guys that god foreknows that he what predestines that he what calls that he what justifies that he what glorifies you can't break that chain it's god's chain that god is for us he's not your prosecutor He is your vindicator. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing and he intends to conform you to the image of his son. That's where you're going. And then Paul basically says, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who declares righteous. Who's going to condemn? Jesus is the one who died and was raised and is seated at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. Glorious. And then the big thing, watch, ready, is what's going to separate us from the love of God? And the answer is basically what? Nothing, nothing. And you go and you you hook into that as a Christian and you say, that's mine, mine. And you should do that. Grab it, mine, right? My promise. That's for us as a body, as a believers. God intends to keep his promises. Think about what's there, guys. What do you have in Romans 8? What do you have? Romans 8, God causes all things, what? To work together for good to those who love him. And you go, mine. That God's foreknown me. What do you say? mine, that he's predestined me, mine, that he's called me, mine, justified me, mine, glorified, mine, and that God will never leave me, that nothing can separate me from God's love. You say, mine, which leads us into the necessary question of Romans 9, and someone comes along and says, ah, 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 no, 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 wait a second. All this stuff that you're talking about, all these promises But all God's covenant keeping, there's a major problem here. And here's the problem. You're talking all this stuff about God fulfilling His promises and everything else, but you have a major issue here underneath your nose that apparently you haven't paid attention to, Paul. And that is this. Is that how come all these Jews over here, temple stuff, wearing the clothes, doing the deal, all these Jews don't believe in your Messiah. They reject Him. And you make all these promises to God's people about God never losing them, about God justifying them. But apparently, ready? He doesn't keep His promises because you got Jews over here that don't believe in your Messiah. And that's a major problem on the surface. It's a major issue because here's the deal, ready? If God's word had failed... If he did not keep his promises through Abraham, through the Jewish people, through the the ones that got the the, the covenants, the ones that had all these promises, the worship, the law, the adoption, through whom the patriarchs, all these things. If God actually didn't keep his promises, then you can't believe anything he says in Romans 8. What do you have to, to hang on to? How can you cherish any promise in Romans 8? If ready... He calls this his new covenant and he's supposedly going to do all this stuff. But he didn't keep his promise to these people because I got a little problem. Now, you apparently are Jewish and believe in Messiah. But there's a whole lot of Jews over there that don't believe he's the Messiah. So what has God's word failed? Listen, if Paul didn't have this discussion, everything that he's already said would be nonsense. This chapter ends up being a foundation piece argument for what God has done in Christ, in the Messiah. If this part wasn't in the Bible, you would have reason to doubt. Because you'd have to ask the question, wait a minute now. Yeah, Jesus fulfilled all this stuff. He's clearly, looks like he's the Messiah in all these verses and he rose from the dead. But geez, that problem with those Jews. I mean, didn't God promise that he was gonna keep, he was gonna keep his covenant and fulfill it? How come all these Jews don't believe? So this is a major issue. The problem of unbelieving Israel. I'm going to read it to you again. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. There's a whole sermon coming up on that. The heartbeat of those of us who know Christ for the, our families and the loss. We need to have that. Paul basically says, I could wish that I were going to go to hell for my family these these people that are jews i wish that i was a cut off from christ it's not possible he already said in romans 8 it's not possible but he's saying you know theoretically i would i would want to die and go and be accursed but then he says this they're israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the messiah who is god overall yeah that called jesus god blessed forever Now here's the thing, this isn't the first time Paul's talked about this, he's already started to preempt the question, if you just look back, I'm not going to go into heavy detail right now, because we've already done it in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through the rest of that chapter. He says, for circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, won't he be seen as a covenant keeper? And then basically Paul says, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For, here we go, this one I want you to hook into you guys, you get this? For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Nowhere is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What does that mean? Are you ready for this? If you are in Christ and you belong to God, you're part of God's new covenant, he's brought you out of the world, then you are a true spiritual Jew. Someone says to me, how come the Jews, you know, they don't believe in Messiah? Well, I say, well, all of Jesus' early followers were Jews, so shalom. We're the spiritual Jews. We're grafted into Israel. There's not a distinction between you know, Israel over there, and like we have this sort of like God's red-headed stepchildren over here, no offense to the red-headed people in the room. We have sort of like this secondary class people over here. Listen, if you're a believer in Christ today, God sees you as truly a Jew, fulfillment of all those promises. You are in Israel. There are not two peoples of God. There is one people of God. We've been grafted in, God's kept his promises. But still, what's the problem? I have to do this today, and this is probably what we're going to do for tonight. i got to give you the context. i got to let you wrap your minds around, let us come to this text, wrapping our minds around what was even going on in the first century. Because here's the deal, I admit it, especially for those of you guys that are new to Christ, like me, raised in a, a home that was really not a Christian home, You don't know this background, the history. And so it's all foreign stuff. This is all just strange Christian ghetto language, right? You're like justification and righteousness and like Gentile. What's that? Is that like a light chicken gravy? You don't know, right? So you just, and you can't assume these things all the time. So I have to give you the background. I have to lay down what was going on in the first century. So what I want to do is I'm going to show you in Romans. Ready? Paul is writing this letter somewhere in the 50s, probably mid 50s to the church in Rome, doesn't know them, never met them. That's when he wrote it. It was after, watch this, a major uh, thing had happened, we know from history, where, ready, the the Jews who believed in Jesus as Messiah and the Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah were causing all kinds of problems. There were riots breaking over Christ. And so what Claudius did was he basically said, all right, here's the deal, ready, all this fighting, get them out. So if you just get all the Jews out of Rome. So they were sent away, and then they were allowed back in. And so when he writes Romans, he's writing in that context where now they're allowed back in. All these questions are stirring. you got Jews over here who say, listen... We're Jewish, truly Jewish, circumcised, all that stuff, temple stuff. You guys who believe in this Jesus, Messiah character, you're not truly Jews. And the Jews over here that are believers in Messiah are saying, you're not Jewish. You can't be Jewish and not be a part of this covenant of Abraham. You can't be Jewish and reject the Jewish Messiah. And so all this stuff is is this upheaval is happening. Paul's going to answer these questions. So let's go back. Let's go back and let's look at the context. I'm going to start thinking about the context during Jesus' ministry. That's where I want to take you. And so before I actually unpack Romans 9, I want to take you to the context of the ministry of Jesus and what kind of things are being said. What did it look like? What was in the atmosphere? What did it taste like to be in that time period? So I want to take you there. So first things first, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 3 to get the context, the air. What was going on in the atmosphere of the time? And I'm going to take you to a guy that you should know. His name was John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is actually, for those of you guys that are history buffs, a really well-known first century character. We actually know a lot about John the Baptist from outside of the Bible. You can read about John the Baptist and Josephus. Josephus is not a Christian. He's a first century Jewish historian. He was a general in the Jewish army in the fight against Rome during the destruction of Jerusalem, finalized in 70 A.D., Josephus wrote about John the Baptist. So interestingly, John the Baptist was a very famous, very respected, revered first century Jew. Well, here's what we know about John the Baptist in the Bible. He was a cousin cousin of Jesus. And John the Baptist really fulfills what was said in Malachi about that God was going to send a messenger before the Messiah came to turn the hearts of the people basically to God. And enter John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3. Ready? Ready? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, if you can get the picture of John the Baptist, sort of like a man's man, right? Like I'm thinking, like when I think of John the Baptist, honestly, I think like let's get like a a leather apron around Pastor Luke, give him a staff. (laughs) and like have him standing out in the wilderness. And I'm like, that's John the Baptist right there. You know what I'm saying? A man's man, bearded up, locusts and honey. That's just, if you want to know what's going on in my mind, that's what's happening in my mind. Just so you know, Pastor Luke, I never shared that with you, but there you go. Um, so if you can picture this as a man, right? Bearded up and he's doing locusts and honey. And it's strange that John wore a garment of camel's hair, leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves. Now, everyone listen. Here is where you got to hook in. If you're like, ah, oh, this is tough. Let me let me hand on something firm here. This is what I want you to grab. This is where you grab on right now. Listen to what John the Baptist, who is preparing the way for Mashiach, for the Messiah, listen to what he's saying in that context to the religious leadership of his day. Listen, he had to say this for a reason. This is not just words on the page. He's not preaching loosely for no reason. He's addressing an issue that is in the atmosphere that Paul is going to also address later. So listen to what's going on in the ministry of Jesus. John's saying to the leadership of his day, listen, verse nine, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Do you get that? What's their boast? What's a first century Jews boast in that day? What are they bragging on? You want to see my family tree? You want to see it? I can trace it all the way back to Abraham. See, Father Abraham's in there. I'm Jewish, right? And they say, you want to truly see? Let me show you. Circumcision, you want to see that? Wouldn't know? Okay, so family tree, what do you want to know? That's where it all comes from. That's what they're saying. That's what they would brag on. And John the Baptist comes in. He says, you brood of poisonous snakes. And he promises there is wrath about to come. In that context, first century, there was a promise of judgment on that generation. John the Baptist was not simply preparing the way for Jesus. He was warning them about the wrath about to come in their generation. And what he says is this. Watch this. He says, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Now watch this. You take an axe and you swing it. Nope. Not at the root of the tree yet. But if you drop it down, it's about to hit that tree. That's when you've already swung and it's on its way. Nothing's stopping it. Don't get in its way because it's about to cut you down. And when John the Baptist says the axe is laid at the root of the tree, it does not mean that it's, he's kind of like, just kind of like nudging it against there. Hey, maybe. It's already swung. It's already got its teeth into the edge of the tree, laid on it. And John is saying This Messiah is coming, and so is this wrath. Repent, you brood of snakes, poisonous snakes. But what he says to them is, don't even presume to say that Abraham is your father. Listen to me. God can raise up from these rocks children of Abraham, which is answering something already, isn't it? What are the Jews thinking? Hey, I'm good with God because it's in the blood. I'm good with God because it's in my family. He says, God can raise up from these rocks, heirs of Abraham. Don't say to yourself, you have Abraham as your forefather. And you see, it's already in the air, isn't it? Ministry of Jesus. You see what Paul's starting to address. You see, Paul's discourse is not a detached discourse away from the context. It's very seriously answering a major issue going on in the first century. They thought they were Jewish because they had Abraham physically as their father. And listen, the Bible never, ever, 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 ever taught. That somebody is an heir according to this promise because they are physically descended from Israel. You know why? Abraham had other kids, didn't he? But who was the promise through? Isaac. He was the son of the promise. That was the fulfillment of that covenant promise through Isaac. He had Ishmael. He had other kids. And those were not the ones that were the heirs according to the promise. It was through Isaac that his seed was called. Do you see? And that went through Jesus. And listen, here's the deal. You've got to be a child of Abraham. If you're going to be an heir according to these promises, if you're receiving these blessings, you've got to be of that covenant, of that line. And that's through faith. Apart from works, it's recipients of grace. Listen, sovereign grace, sovereign mercy, which means, ready? I'm going to lay it out for you right now. Yes, I am saying that this God chose to save. And that this God mercies whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. And this entire thing is all about a five-letter word, grace. That's what this is about. And listen, how could you apply this to this day? Let me just say this to you. Ready? For those of you guys that are raised in Christian homes, I wasn't. But if you happen to have been in a context where you're raised in a Christian home, you went to youth camp, you did a want sword drill. Like, you know, if you did all that stuff, Whatever it was, see, some, only a few of you, only the elect in here understood that question. That, one, yeah. that was a little Bible joke for you. If you were part of that, like, how could you apply that to today? Listen, you are not a believer, saved, justified, right with God, because it's in the atmosphere, because you're around other Christians, because you're raised in a Christian home. I mean, don't be deluded into thinking, oh, that was just a Jewish problem. That attaches to today, at least in some respect. Raised in a Christian home, went to youth group, went to a Like, I've got Bibles on my shelf. Check it out. ESV, NASB, NIV, like K- KJV. So what? Are you a child of Abraham through faith? Just because it's in the atmosphere and it's family lineage for you, does that mean you're a child? No, it's through faith. It's the sovereign grace of God. Okay, more context. Now move ahead to Matthew. We're staying in Matthew. Matthew 22. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read this parable. Now, remember the context. John comes in preparing the way for Jesus. And what's he doing? Warning them about the wrath about to come. Telling them, basically, don't boast in the fact that you are children of Abraham. God can raise up from these rocks, children of Abraham. And now enter Jesus, constantly warning his generation that they were going to receive judgment before they all died. And then he gives them these interesting parables. And I want you to hear what it actually says. Matthew 22, everyone follow this because this gets heavy. Listen closely to the words, to the context, what Jesus is actually saying. I'm sorry, Matthew 21, 33. I'm sorry, I told you the wrong reference. Matthew 21, through 45. I'm going to read it to you here. Jesus gives a parable. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And by the way, read Isaiah. God calls Israel his vineyard. You're Jewish, hearing a parable by a Jewish rabbi. And he talks about a vineyard. You know your scriptures. You know what God called his vineyard. Israel. Jesus says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, and dug a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. finally, He sent his son to them saying they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. You catching it? You hearing it? This is the story of Israel through and through. This is Israel taking God's prophets, stoning them, killing them, ignoring them. The whole story of the Old Testament, read Ezekiel, read Jeremiah, read Isaiah. These guys like Isaiah walked around buck naked as a testimony to Jews, sort of like preaching against them and they're not listening. They want these guys dead. This is a story of Israel, God's vineyard. And so this is a story where Jesus is saying, and then the owner of the vineyard says, I'll send my son. And what do they say? We'll kill him. And so watch. They said to him, sorry, Jesus says, verse 40. When therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Guess what? Paul's going to quote that later. Therefore, I tell you, listen closely, everyone. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Wow, are you getting it? Are you feeling it? What is John saying? Don't say that because you're descendants of Abraham, that you're Abraham's children. God can raise up from these rocks. Wrath is about to come. And then Jesus says, here's a parable. There's a vineyard. Master, you know, he leases it out. He wants fruit. He sends people. They're constantly stoning one, killing another. So he sends his son and then they kill his son. And Jesus says, what's the master of the vineyard? What's he going to do? What's he going to do with these people who have the vineyard that's are supposed to give him fruit? What's he going to do when he finds out they've killed his son? And they're like, he's going to destroy them. He'll destroy them. And he'll, he'll give it out to people who will actually produce the fruit of it. And Jesus says, that's exactly what God's going to do with you. And so watch this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. <laughs> And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. One more, one more parable. I want to give you the atmosphere. I want you to be able to taste the air. I want you to be able to feel the dirt underneath your feet. I want you to walk in the shoes of the disciples and feel what was going on today. What are the arguments? What's being said? Remember, Jesus is preaching this to Jews. So get this, watch this. As this gospel of Paul in Romans is being unpacked, it's leading up necessarily to, hey, what are you saying? God's abandoned his covenant Has he just all of a sudden decided to do it a new way? We're answering these questions. Here's another parable. Ready? In 22. And again, Jesus said, or spoke to them in parable saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for a son. Listen closely. This is so awesome. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Are you getting the feeling? The Jews in the first century saying, Guys! Repent and believe. Messiah come. He's Lord of all the universe. He's ascended, right? Come, repent, believe. Salvation, forgiveness is in this Messiah. And the Jews are killing them. They're beating the apostles, the disciples. The major instigators in the first century of persecution were the Jews and the Romans. Initially, first, the Jewish leadership of Jerusalem. Who was Paul? A student of Gamaliel. A rabbi, Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, Right? And what's he doing? Throwing Christians in jail? We know he at least had Stephen killed, right? That's what he was up to. That's what was up in the first century. And so you see that in Jesus. He's saying this wedding feast called, but they wouldn't come. And he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Ready? The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. What's that sound like? 70 AD. This was written before then, guys. Jesus is is setting them up for what was ahead. This all happened in the first century. Now, ready? Watch this. Then he said to the servants, the wedding feast is ready. Get... But those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. Romans 9, Israel, not all Israel is Israel. The elect receive it, the chosen, those who are mercy by God. Are you getting the common thread here between Jesus and Paul in explaining this situation? Many are called, few are chosen. The basis is on God's sovereign choice to love and to mercy the unworthy. One more, and then we're done. Matthew 23. <laughs> okay. How many of you guys heard the uh, the last radio show I did? I did with Jerry. Anybody hear that? All right, we got one fan. Good, good, right on. That's about sounds about right. Okay. We did, a, we did a radio episode Jerry and I did on uh, a tribute to Walter Martin. Walter Martin talked about the fact that uh, you have to have boldness when you proclaim the gospel. that G- This whole idea of like, he says, Jesus loved you. You know, this whole idea, like, you know, this, this message of Jesus that just loves you. Like, no, Jesus is going to judge you if you don't repent and believe and come to him to be reconciled to God. And this whole message of Jesus that you have incarnate love speaking as love to people who need grace. And in Matthew 23, Jesus says some hard words. And by the way, watch this. I wouldn't believe that he was God in the flesh if he didn't. I anticipate seeing in God, in the flesh, all the attributes of God, and anger with sin, and anger with oppression of people, and anger with people who distort his word, a love for people. I would expect to see all these things in God's life as a man, and you see it. This passage, if it weren't there, you, if it weren't there in Scripture, Jesus' righteous indignation against people who oppress these people, I would think you'd have every reason to doubt but it's there. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 29. Hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate a monument to the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Uh, your, your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. Hey, it sounds like John the Baptist. How are, you to, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of, some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the blood of the, righteous, all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of an innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's a promise. And it's a promise that God kept. And here we go. Ready? This is what I want you to hear to get a feel for the atmosphere what Paul's going to describe. I want you to get a feel again for what the ground feels like. What is the conversation going on? What was being said? Why would this come up as a major problem for Paul that he has to spend chapters dealing with? Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often... I would have gathered, listen to the words, your children. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not see your house is left to you desolate. (laughs) Jesus is promising judgment. Now watch this. This is really important to grab onto here. He's telling Jerusalem as a whole, how often I would have watched the word is this. Listen to me. Tell me if if you recognized it. Synagogue. Right, you, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh, I passed by that. Shalom, right? See the yarmulkes, the dudes with the funny hats that are walking. I've seen the synagogue, right? The word here is basically the word synagogue. How often I would have synagogued, gathered your children together, but you weren't willing all the blood of the righteous is going to be upon this generation. So get this, watch this. Paul's preaching the gospel and he's like, hey, God foreknows, predestines, calls, justifies, glorifies, causes all things to work together for good. Nothing can separate you from God's love. And the people that are around there are going, um, are you saying that the word of God has failed? Is God unjust? Aren't these God's people? And Paul says, not all Israel is truly Israel. You're not a Jew outwardly, you're a Jew inwardly. And you say, well, what's the diff? What's the difference? What's the distinction? And let's go to Paul's answer. Romans 9. And this is where we wrap up for today. Romans chapter 9. He says, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So ready? You've got Israel, broadly, fleshly people, descended of Abraham, hanging around, wearing the clothes, doing temple, synagogue, law, all that stuff. Shalom, look Jewish. And Paul actually says, but what you don't understand is that not all Israel is Israel. There's an Israel, a spiritual Israel, a true people of God, always a remnant. God's chosen according to his mercy that is truly there. God has not abandoned his promises. The word of God has not failed. And you say, well, how does it work? Because listen, you have to be a child of the promise through this promise to Abraham And how was Abraham justified? He was justified by what, everyone? Faith. Abraham believed God and was credited in him as righteousness. Are you a part of that covenant? Are you a part of that promise through Isaac all the way down to Jesus? Are you in that one? Because these guys over here that are walking around saying they're Abraham's descendants that think they're going to be declared righteous through the law, they're not Abraham's descendants. Only those who are according to God's choice, because watch, this means, verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. But this is what the promise said, about this time and next year I will, next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order. Here we go. Hook in, guys. Grab, grab, grab. Here we go. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. What's being contrasted? Here's a you grab. Works is being contrasted with the him who calls. Let me say it to you again, not because of works, but ready, because of him who calls. This salvation is not based on anything anyone has ever done or ever will do. This is based on the sovereign grace and mercy of God. That's the God of the Bible That is the God of all the universe, not based on works, but on him who calls. And so that's why it says, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written. Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Here we go. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so that it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. I'd like to just end it and let those words hang in the atmosphere around this room right now and penetrate your hearts. This story is god's story we say that all the time don't we this is god's story not your story it's all about him all the boasting goes to god but now you're actually seeing it come to this ultimate climax point where paul's basically saying yeah it's what you think he's totally sovereign it's based on his mercy his goodness his grace he's that kind of god and so what does that mean you guys got to catch this for a second you look at your life and you look at your experience you say oh but i believed in christ paul says it's not according to human will So what's that mean? That it wasn't because you willed this that God says, okay, now I'll choose you. It wasn't based on human will or what? How about this? Well, I go to church. I've read the Bible, done all these things. Like I'm working really hard. Not on human exertion. It's not on human will or exertion. It's on God who calls. It's dependent upon his mercy. It's to say that God basically has, 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 has all of humanity wrapped up before him, this one lump of clay, all worthy of the same thing, death. And that God has mercied. And we look at this text and we say, how come God hated Esau? And that just shows where you're really at if you're asking that question. If you ask that question, how come God hated Esau then it shows what you think about God and yourself because the question that every child of God who knows his condition before a holy God, the question that should always pour out of your hearts is never why did God hate Esau, but why would God ever love Jacob? If you're in this room today and you have turned to God and you've been joined to Christ the Messiah and raised up with him, listen, it goes even beyond what we've been talking about over the last two and a half years. We've talked a lot about grace and boasting in God and faith and all these different things. But you know what? It just got heavy, didn't it? Just got real in here, didn't it? Because now it's moving further back to say this. God's word hasn't failed. God's kept his covenant. He's kept his promise. There's always a remnant according to grace, not according to works, according to the one who calls, according to his mercy. He keeps his promises. This is his story. It's his plan. He will fulfill it. And so, so what? Ready? So what? So what? So what? Number one, you can rest on his promises. His word hasn't failed. He's kept his word, kept his promises, which means what? You can depend on Romans 8. How you like that? How you like that? He kept his promise through Isaac. There's always a remnant. There's always his chosen according to his grace by his mercy. He keeps his promises. has never failed. How you like that? You can rest on Romans 8. You know how you know you can? Because this is the God who cannot lie, who keeps his covenant, his promises. It never ends. He never changes. There's no darkness in him at all. Which means when you look into Romans 8 as a child of God, you know what you say? That's my God. That's the God who never abandons me, will never leave me, who will always stand by me, and always causes all things to work together for my good. You can rest in this. Yes, you can rest in it when you're standing in the middle of the boat with the waves crashing onto the boats. Yes, you can trust Him. Yes, you can trust Him when you look at your account and it says negative. Yes, you can trust Him when you get that phone call at 3 a.m. Yes, you can trust Him when your family collapses because this is the covenant-keeping God who's never, ever, ever failed in His promises to His people. He'll never lose you, lose you or forsake you. And number two, you can trust in His sovereignty. Let me tell you right now, I talk about missions. Let me just say this. I'm I'm going to dis Arminianism right now, okay? Ready? Arminianism and the concept of a God who tries to save and fails, a Savior who dies for sinners and fails, and a Holy Spirit who tries to save and is unable to actually breach the will of the almighty creature. I want to say Arminianism destroys missions. Because if God's done everything he can and Jesus has done everything he can, and the Holy Spirit tries to save and fails over and over and over and then ready. I have no confidence for missions. No thanks. but if I have this God, if I have this God who says, "Not human will, not human exertion, but on God who shows mercy, I've got the God who speaks into death and says, "Life, live. I've got the God who looks at the world and says, "Watch this, ready? Abraham's descendants, Romans chapter four, you know what it says? They will inherit the world so when you proclaim the gospel and you need to be proclaiming it you know what you believe in a sovereign god who gives you guaranteed success that when he mercies he mercies when he hardens he hardens it's according to his mercy and his grace and his power and he can accomplish all of his word third thing because of this let me say this at least at least at least this third thing ready and this is where we got to have a jolt as a church And this this evangelical American Christianity and a lot of beliefs that need to die a fiery death. And here's one of them. The truths of Romans 9 and God's sovereignty and his power and his promise to keep his covenant to Abraham. What was that covenant? What did he say? Abraham, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars. Your descendants are going to inherit the world. The world. You know what this means? God is this sovereign. And he keeps his his promise to Abraham. You know what it means? What was that promise? That his descendants would inherit the what? The world. You know what this means? You have to leave a legacy. You have to. You have to leave a legacy for the gospel. Be done with simple, worthless pursuits. Leave a legacy for the gospel. This covenant-keeping God has a plan for the whole entire world. Not for us to put our heads in the sand. Not for us to walk through the world without boldness. To walk in a way that's full of fear. This is a promise that is for the world. And let me tell you right now, our mission as believers is to proclaim the good news of Messiah. To grow His kingdom. To leave a legacy for the gospel. So my question to you is this. Seeing as this is our God... And that he keeps his promises and that his plan is for the whole world. Let me ask you this. And you don't have to answer out loud, but let me ask you this. What is God calling you to do to leave a legacy for his kingdom in this world? You have all of the power and wisdom that is possibly imaginable of God. Behind this mission. You say, oh, I'm not educated. Or I'm not ready. Or I'm not this. Are you ready? Guess what? It's not as though the word of God has failed. This is based on his keeping, his promises, his mercy, his power, his story. And so you know what he says to you? Go. Go. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You know what you can do now that you have Romans 9 underneath your feet? You know what you can do as you stand on the truths about this true and living God? You can now look at the world and you could say, I'm going to leave a legacy. I am going to leave a legacy because God's plan is huge in scope and He is able to accomplish it. Listen, Romans 9 drives missions. And so I'm asking the question, what is God calling you to do? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your love and your goodness in this passage. We love you, God, and pray that you would just stir the hearts of your people in here, God. I, I just pray, Father, that I was faithful. I just pray, God, that you would use us, Lord, to settle our hearts, to grow us in you to empower us for missions and worship and service to you. I pray that this transforms, Lord, the hearts of everyone in here, Lord, who saw you in a small way. God, I hope that tonight you smashed, you melted idols in our hearts and lives where we viewed you as so small, as not able to do whatever with humans, Lord, but you are the God who declares the end from the beginning and you do according to your will in the heavens above and among the inhabitants of the earth. And all we can say to you, God, as your people is this, why would you ever love me? God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your power, your sovereignty and grace. And I just want to pray, God, that you would stir a movement in the hearts of these people right here that you've called together to grow your kingdom, to glorify you, and to increase your fame throughout the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.